Did we'll you see that? <gasps> what? Yeah. What is this? What? Oh my gosh, what's going on? <laughs> this is the part that's scary because nothing's happening. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. <gasps> no! <laughs> no! That was scary. That was scary. That was scary. It's time for girls and ghouls. Okay, let's talk about it. I'm so excited. Halloween! <laughs> This Halloween. is our first Halloween as a ghosty podcast. I know. It's so exciting. It's like the holiday made for us. I'm so excited. So excited for Halloween. I wanted to play some creepy music. Okay. But it won't sound very good. So Aaron's going to have to Aaron that in. Aaron it in. Yeah. It's happening, right? I have I now. have a little playlist that I built just for this episode, and now I can't use any of it, and I'm sad. <laughs> because <laughs> it'll sound really weird i don't know this is it guys this is what we've been talking about though for like a month we're so i'm so excited i can't believe it's here i'm so excited i'm so ready for it by the way guys if you are new to the podcast this is girls and ghouls and this is our special halloween episode i just that's right my voice just cracked like a teenage boy did you hear it was like <laughs> <laughs> The demons. The demons. They're coming out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's Aaron, by the way, and, and I'm Kirsten. She is Kirsten. That's right. Indeed. Indubitably. 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 I'm so excited. She we just can't hide it. Decided to put together a very special Halloween episode. Indeed. We have each selected two scary movies, and we're going to talk about. The stories behind each one. And I was yes. so excited. This See, was so fun to research, too. Yeah? Mm-hmm. I, I love doing this stuff. See, the thing is, with scary movies, it's all fun, and you can turn the TV off, and it's like, well, that wasn't real. But um, with the scary movies that we have chosen... Are real. They're real. <laughs> they're based on actual things. And that not happened. like like there once was a house. The right. end. Because you've seen those, where it's Based on right. true events, one man had the hiccups and then exploded. <laughs> you hear all about the exploding hiccups. Thing, I don't know huh? why. I was stuck on it. I don't know. We've actually done a couple of stories that mm-hmm. were movies. Indeed, we have. Um, I'm trying to think. We I did, did the Parent Family. We did the Parent Family. Um, I'm trying to look for that. I've got our list here. The Perrin Family was episode 16, mm-hmm. and we also did the Smurl Family. I think that was one, wasn't it? Smurl no. Family. Smurl. was so Smurl. No, the Moffat Family Poltergeist. That was the one that was a movie. I can't remember which movie, but that was definitely a movie. Okay. And that was episode 25, I think. Um, yeah. I feel like the 200 Demon House will be a legit movie one day. Not the movie that Weirdo did, but like a legit scary movie. Like a legit scary movie. Yeah, if you guys want a movie done by a weirdo, Super Demon House. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, there's... We've done some really creepy, creepy stories. But, um, yeah, so this will be fun. It will be. No doubt. No doubt. Um... I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. You want to just dive in? How do we want to yeah. do this? We want to like flip flop, we'll, go back and we'll forth? go back and forth? Yeah. Because we're each doing two. Yeah. So who starts? Um, I mean, I don't care. Okay. Do you want to go You want me first? to start since I you ended the last episode? Yeah. <laughs> flip those papers around. That's right. Get, this is a scary sound. Scary sound. <laughs> So, I'm trying to think which one I want to do first. Because they're both so good. (laughs) I'll start with my favorite. My favorite scary movie of all time is the 1979 Amityville Horror. Ah! 
<laughs> I feel like we need to have a scream right there. Okay. <laughs> it has been edited in. <laughs> so I don't like the remake, other than the fact that Ryan Reynolds is in it and he's beautiful. A beautiful but man. other than that, I don't like the remake. I like the original 1979 version. Right. So the 1975 movie depicts George and Kathleen Lutz and their family moving into a fixer-upper on a large piece of property, um, only to flee three weeks later due to horrific paranormal activity. In the film, the daughter befriends Jody, an invisible friend who does a number of things like locking the babysitter in the closet, persuading the daughter out onto the roof to join her in the afterlife, she shows herself to Kathleen as a red-eyed being out the window, and George sees Jody as a large pig in the upstairs window. Oh. Uh, George starts to wake up every morning around 3 a.m., and he's having this inner battle with voices telling him to kill his family. A priest comes to bless the home, gets locked in a room, and a swarm of flies attack him when he tries to bless the house. So that is the Amityville horror. It's very terrifying. Um, it's a very scary movie. Have you ever yeah. seen the original? Yeah. Long okay. time ago. Long time ago. Long time I ago. love it. So, the truth, as they say, is scarier than fiction. Mm. Um, on November 13th, 1974, six members of the DeFeo family, Father Ronald, Mother Louise, two daughters, and two sons, were shot to death in their beds, in their home while they slept, at 112 Ocean Avenue. Nice. A third son, 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., initially told police he innocently discovered the bodies in the locked house around 6 p.m. after he'd been coming home from the bar. But within two days of finding the bodies, he was on the hook for six second-degree murder charges. They, the police came to believe that he had committed the crimes because he wanted insurance money, a sum of about $200,000, which is about nine hundred grand today. Uh, DeFeo's lawyers hired a psychiatrist who said that Butch was a paranoid psychotic hmm. and that he methodically moved through the house and shot each of his relatives one by one, which if you've ever read anything about the murders at the DeFeo house, all of the victims were face down with their arms at their sides and they were shot in the back. So it's like he didn't want to look at them, you know, oh my gosh. it's really awful um there was a thunderstorm that night which kind of explains why the gunshots didn't necessarily wake up the rest of the family right you know maybe they thought it was thunder i don't know but it's just a very odd very yeah. odd situation a psychiatrist was also hired by the prosecution and they did agree that defeo was mentally ill but they insisted that he was well aware of what he had done and that it was wrong mm-hmm. um and he didn't fit the legal definition of insanity the jury sided with the prosecution, and Butch DeFeo received six concurrent life sentences for the death of his siblings, which he is still in jail for today. Oh, my gosh. He's still alive. Wow. Yeah. Um, in February of 1976, just three months after purchasing the home, George and Kathleen Lutz appeared in Weber's office. Now, Weber was the lawyer for Butch DeFeo. Hmm. How about that? They were in his office to discuss why they moved out so abruptly, with only three changes of clothes apiece. George did most of the talking, but he still didn't say very much. He just kept saying that a, quote, very strong force forced them out of their home. Weber told reporters that day that now, having heard the Lutz family's full story, the story they were not entirely sharing that day with reporters, he thought he could reopen the DeFeo case. Um, the tale of paranormal phenomena in the house suggested that DeFeo had, in fact, been out of his mind. He'd been driven out of it by this supernatural current in the place. Oh. He never did open up the case again, though. Instead, he took the case to an author who wrote a book, who then turned it into a movie. Of course. Because that's what we do, right? That's what decent human beings do. So here are some fun facts. Um, George and Kathleen were married, but the children were Kathleen's from her previous marriage. George was their stepfather. Right. Um, apparently, he dabbled a little bit in the occult. Oh. Which was not apparent in the movie. Yeah. Um, he did wake up almost every morning around 3.15 a.m., which was around the time when Ronald DeFeo murdered his family. Oh. 
One of their sons, Daniel Lutz, claims that he was indeed possessed by a spirit. Another son, Christopher, insists that he had run-ins with the paranormal while living in that house for the short period of time. He saw a presence as definite as a shadow in the shape of a man that moved toward him and then dissipated. George and Kathleen took a lie detector test about their story, and they passed with flying colors. Missy, one of the daughters, she did have an imaginary friend named Jody. Uh, the entity would present, present itself to the daughter in different forms, including an angel and a large pig. Okay. That's at the end of the movie. George sees the pig. Yeah. So that part apparently did happen. After the movie came out, the priest who blessed the home in real life, mm-hmm. he conducted an anonymous interview and he said, I'm quoting, I was blessing the sewing room. It was cold. It was really cold in there. I'm like, well, gee, this is peculiar because it was a lovely day out and it was winter, yes, but it didn't account for that kind of coldness. I was also sprinkling holy water and I heard a rather deep voice behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap at one point on the face. I felt somebody slap me and there was nobody there. Wow. He also said that after he left the home a few days later, his hands had festering blisters on them. Both his hands. In a 2011 interview with 30 Odd Minutes, that's the name of the show. (laughs) Okay. Christopher Lutz, who was one of the sons, he clarified that even though one of the Amityville home's infamous eye windows never shattered like the movie depicts. Mm Mm-hmm. This element of the movie was, in fact, inspired by the windows having opened on their own repeatedly. He said, that was my bedroom. Those two windows are one bedroom, and that used to be Ronald DeFeo's bedroom. Those two windows are one bedroom, and that used to be Ronald DeFeo's bedroom. And when we moved in the house, my brother and I shared that room. That window opened many times, but rather than display it like it happened, they showed it absolutely shattering. It didn't shatter the glass. The window opened. The thing swung open. Wow. So, a lot of the stuff that's in the book and, of course, in the movie is dramatized. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of the stuff did actually happen, according to the Lutz family. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, I think it would have to take something pretty crazy to make you move out of a home you just bought three months prior. Yeah. So, um, that is the true story of the Amityville Horror. Woo! That's spooky. Pretty creepy. Oy, ay, ay. It's so good. Such so a good, good. Movie. I That's love it. Good. So much. So good. Oh, man. The the contrast between the angel and the pig gets me. Yeah, I know. And like, I think hmm. that's on purpose, you know? Yeah. It's just because a strange thing. apparently Jody would manifest herself to different people as different things. Yeah. And I think the little girl would see her as the angel because she was trying to get Jody to come be with her or trying to get missy i'm sorry to come be with her yeah and then um you know kind of warning people to stay away from her with the pig and other things like that so it's pretty creepy oh and i don't think i didn't write this down too but there's a scene in the movie where one of the boy's fingers gets broken or something that actually happened but apparently it was because of his own stupidity it wasn't a paranormal incident <laughs> gotcha so, yeah okay they just included it in the book like a ghost did it they were like a ghost came over and grabbed his finger and broke it in half mm-hmm. the end the closet scene is one of the scariest scenes in the whole movie to me because mm-hmm. that's i mean that's scary just from a psychological standpoint you get stuck in a room and you can't get out yeah yep scary and, yeah it was awful scary Oh, that was a good one. I like that one. All right. So my first story, because I did the first, I did The Conjuring last season. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to do The Conjuring 2. <laughs> Guys, you have to come up with better names. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, really. The Conjuring 2. Okay, so uh, I didn't do like a summary of what the movie's about because I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I've never seen it. 
I've what? never seen The Conjuring 2. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I knew it was based off a true story, which is why, because I was like, they're going to butcher this. Um, okay, so the synopsis here is 1977, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren come out of a self-imposed sabbatical to travel to Einfield, a borough in North London. There they meet Peggy Hodgson, an overwhelmed single mother of four who tells the couple that something evil is in her home. Ed and Lorraine believe her story when the youngest daughter starts to show signs of demonic possession. As the Warrens try to help the besieged girl, they become the next targets of the malicious spirit. Okay. That all sounds very sinister and dark and whatnot. Um, <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> it's scary, but this whole, like, like they were possessed and killing each other vibe, um, honestly... It didn't feel like that to me. So this story is about, or this movie is about the Einfield poltergeist, which is probably the most popular poltergeist story in uh, in England because it was so highly sensationalized. It got so many like news reports. People were traveling all over the world or from all over the world to come see this house for a period of time. Um, and it's also one of the first poltergeist stories where the people actually came forward and they said that some of the stuff that they told was slightly embellished in order to get people to believe them. Not all of it, but some of it. Um, one of the things that I've learned is, is that this is super common for people talking about poltergeist stories because they feel like they feel like they have to do something to get people to believe this extraordinary event, right? So. This is the story of the the uh, I, of Peggy Hodgson, like we said, forty seven year old divorcee, and her four children: Margaret, Janet, John, and Billy. Um, these are all actually not their real names, but this is what everybody knows them as. So, August thirty first, nineteen seventy seven, they start to hear things in this house: um, shuffling in the bedroom, knocking on the walls. And when Janet and John get their mother to come investigate this, they, the, the chest of drawers, a large chest of drawers, moves 18 inches across the room by itself, right in front of them. Um, they freak out. They get people to come over. They have um, the police, Nottingham, uh, the, wait, the neighbors, Vic and Gary Nottingham, I was um, like, wait, are we, Nottingham, are we in Nottingham now? We're in Nottingham now. No, I, I like hit enter weird on this. Um, they go get the neighbors, um, Vic and Gary Nottingham. They come in. They hear the knocks. They're searching the house, trying to figure out where the knocks are. They call the police because they're like, something is going on here. The police come. They see chairs moving across the room, and they hear the knocking, but they can't figure anything out. They're just like, okay, whatever. They leave because this is unexplained and whatever. After they leave, though, marbles and toys, like Legos, like the little like, building blocks of that time, they just started being thrown around the house, like all over the place. So they get in touch with, like, priests and whatever to try to calm whatever is happening down. It doesn't help, obviously. At some point, uh, the neighbor calls the Daily Mirror in hope that it would put her in touch with someone who could help. A reporter shows up. Douglas Benz and a photographer, Graham Morris, visit the house. Both of the men witness objects flying through the house. They have pictures of it. And Graham Morris was hit on the forehead by a Lego traveling at a speed that uh, a child couldn't have done. It left a visible bruise on him for days because it hit him so hard. Um, they get more investigators out because they're like, what's going on here? And um, a lot of the activity picks up when investigators are in the house, um, including an inventor who was pretty skeptical, apparently, about this whole thing. Um, Maurice Gross, he joined uh, the investigation. He visited the house and he says that he witnessed a loud crash and that Hodgson's claims on the house were real. He saw marbles that flew through the air and landed on the floor without rolling, which I think is kind of a weird thing. Doors and drawers that opened on their own accord. Door chimes that would swing on their own. And teaspoons, a cardboard box, and a fish tank that hopped in place. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. They keep having investigators come out and eventually they just put together a list of things happening that everybody at this point is experiencing. It hasn't gotten to a point where people are like possessed yet, really. Um, and I still don't think this is a possession, but we have the marbles and the Legos. They're always flying through the air. It's constant. Okay. Which is such a nuisance. Um, teapots shook in the cabinets. Like, there was an earthquake, but nothing else would be shaking. Uh-huh. Metal spoons would bend in half. And Why did they target the kitchen? I don't know. I'm noticing a recurring theme here. I don't know. It gets better, though, because then whatever it is that's bending the spoon then goes around the house and straightens all the lampshades. Oh, well, there you go. At least they're kind of nice. Yeah. The <laughs> toilet was opened and closed. Like, the lid of the toilet was opened and closed when no one was touching it. Um, a slipper was thrown at an investigator. Um, a frame was thrown at Maurice Gross. A bedroom carpet was pulled up from the wall <laughs> in front of them. A settee levitated and overturned in front of a team of 15 people. Wow. Mm-hmm. Kitchen unit doors slid open. Door chimes were moved side to side. Footsteps, all of this stuff. You know, the normal things. Coins would disappear. Small fires would start on their own and put themselves out. Water would pool on the floors. A lot like the Black Monk of Pontefract. Mm -hmm. Water would pool on the floors. The iron frame of the built-in fireplace was wrenched from the wall. Oh my gosh. That's hardcore. Excrement appeared in inappropriate places. There was poo on the floor. Is there any appropriate place other than the toilet? toilet. (laughs) I I don't think so, aside from a toilet. Apparitions began to be seen, both partial and full, um, typically of a man. Then things do get a little bit, like, creeptastic, okay? So at some point... Um, the 11-year-old Janet was picked up and then dumped off in different places. Not really hurt. <laughs> she would just levitate in the air, and then she would be deposited somewhere else. There's a, one story where she's sitting in the living room. She's lifted off her chair and then thrown up the stairs. Oh. Not down okay. the stairs, up the stairs. Up. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> one of my favorites. Is that one of my favorite stories from this is that the neighbor, Hazel Hazel Short, she's not a neighbor, I'm sorry. She's a road crossing council employee. They called her the lollipop lady. She had been walking towards the house to pick up her lollipop sign. And she looked at the house when she heard um, a sound and a bunch, she like looked up at the upstairs window and a bunch of books were being thrown at the window. And then all of a sudden, she saw Janet's body, which is in a, like, prone, like, lying down position, lifting up and falling down. And lifting up <laughs> and falling down. <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't understand at all what was happening. Um, she said that there was no way that a child could bounce in that way. Like, there's no, this was a bedroom. There was no, like, trampoline in there or anything like that. Um, but about... Three months after everything started, because poor Janet, I mean, Janet's like, she's like the target of so much of this stuff towards the end. Um, She's not just being levitated and then set down, um, but there are certain points where she is physically restrained in, like, chairs. Um, Mm. She can't get up. Um, There are written messages to her that are pretty abusive. And then at uh, the point where they start talking about her being possessed, um... She starts to say abusive remarks and swear words in a gruff, masculine voice. Uh, right. Now, this is, like, the weird thing. So it's not always Janet. Sometimes it's Margaret, the other kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they do this study to find out, like, is she possessed? Because she's saying, like, really weird things, you know? Um, and they... They are like, who are you? Like, they have these people come in. They're like, who are you? Using, you know, young Janet and blah, blah, blah. And the person identifies himself itself as Joe Wilkins. 
who said that he had lived and died in the house or lived in the house. And then they found out later that the previous occupant was in fact a Mr. Joe Wilkins who had died in the house. Something that the family did not know. Well then. Joe says that he was still living and he wanted to sleep in Janet's bed. Oh. He wants Janet to leave. Okay. Um, yeah. I'd leave. They <laughs> they start interrogating Joe, who is Janet at the time. And they're like, what happened? He said, I went blind. I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died on a chair in the corner downstairs. Now, they think at this point, they've got all these people who are like, she's faking it. So they tape her mouth shut. I don't understand this step. They tape her mouth shut. The voice continued to be heard. Coming from the back of her head. Okay. I feel like we're going a little Harry Potter. It's coming from the back of her head. Okay. Yeah. Um, this... Like they part her hair and there's a face there. Yeah. They had her fill her mouth with water. The voice still came out of her <laughs> from the back of her head. Um, That's crazy. And then Margaret started to do the same thing. They had a speech therapist come out to see if she was doing some sort of magic ventriloquist trick. She wasn't. Um, it continues for a while. And then the mother is like, you know, this is messed up. Like, we should go. It's not all the things, like, throwing around the house, like the kids being levitated. It's not the voice coming from her daughter saying that she was the previous occupant. It was the fact that her daughter was getting tortured at school at this point. They were, bullet, kids were bullying her, Janet. Um, and Janet, who is now 45, says that she was called the ghost girl. Um, people, would, they would push her around and everything. And that... Um, it was starting to affect her education because even at school she would go into trances and stuff. The one you know what I feel like if this happened present day, mm -hmm. people would love her probably. Oh, They'd probably! Be like, oh my God, you're so cool. For sure. Can we For come sure. over? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And then uh, one of the things because they interviewed Janet pretty recently because um, she is a, a grown woman. You know, she said that she thinks it's she thinks it's her fault. That all that stuff happened in the house because she had started Why? playing with a Ouija board before oh. it all happened. And she didn't know that a Ouija the board would, would do that. So, um, after they after they left, because um, the family the family left. You know, the family left apparently after the mother. The mother did die somewhere. I read somewhere that she died in the house or something. Um, but after everyone else left... Um, Someone else moved in. Her name was Claire. She said she didn't see anything, but she always felt uncomfortable. Like, there was always some sort of presence in the house. And then uh, one night, her son woke up, and she heard people talking. She went to check on her son, and she heard people talking downstairs. And she moved out, like, two months after they moved in. See, she's a smart woman. Yeah, she was It like, doesn't take a million different oh. signs for her. Yeah. It's like, you know, I hear voices where there's not supposed to be voices. I'm out. I'm out. Um, the house is currently occupied by another family. They don't want to be identified. And the mother says, I've got children. They don't know about it. I don't want to scare them. So um, the house well, is still there. I don't know if it's still haunted. I assume it's probably still haunted or something or it's not. I don't know. There's a lot of contradictory information out there about uh, the people in the family and their whereabouts and what they're doing because they did want so much um, privacy around it mm -hmm. despite having all of these reporters all over the place. There are documentaries and tons of stuff about it. Um, but the Einfield Poltergeist is what inspired The Conjuring 2. Ed and Lorraine Warren were there for a smidge bit, not for very long. Um, and one thing that I read from Ed and Lorraine Warren was that Ed had called them crazy. <laughs> really? Ed called them crazy, but Lorraine completely believed what was happening and said that it was real. So... I don't know. But that's the story. The true story behind The Conjuring is that there's an old man well, who's grumptastic about a new family moving in. Hmm. Did I summarize that pretty well? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, six, six pages. Good job. Six pages. Let's condense. Feel that tingle down your spine? Is someone watching you? What's that shadow? 
I get it, this haunted tale is a little scary, but it's fine, it's fine. Because you can share that scary feeling and talk it out in our free community. Head to facebook.com backslash groups backslash girls and ghouls to hang out with the rest of our ghoul friends and share your own spooky stories. Okay, enough chit chat. It's time to get scary. So, um, I feel like I I have to do this. You're just going to have to bear with me. Okay, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Give it just a moment. Everybody will know what this is. Everybody knows. You can even see it, right? Huh? You can see the car. Oh, yes. Driving the mountain road. Yes. Snow-capped peaks in the background. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Friends, we're going to the Overlook Hotel. The Overlook. Jack Torrance and his wife, Wendy, and their son, Danny. We're doing it. We're doing the thing. We're doing the thing. We're going to talk about the true story behind one of the best psychological thrillers of all time, in my opinion, The Shining from 1980. This is honestly one of the best scary movies because it's not like gory scary or like murdery scary. Mm -hmm. It's just freaky. It's a freaky, freaky movie. So in the movie, The Shining... Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, who we adore. We love. His wife, Wendy, their young son, Danny. They move into the Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies in order for Jack to be the caretaker of the hotel while also working on his novel. Danny, their son, kind of has free reign of the hotel. He experiences visions of spectral twins inviting him to play. Come play with us, Danny. Mm. The blood pouring out of the elevator shaft, one of the most iconic scenes of any movie ever. And a decomposing naked woman in room 237. (laughs) Jack begins to go mad. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And we realize by the end of the film that he has always been a part of the Overlook Hotel. He's never left. He will always be there. He's been there for years. It's a really amazing movie. It's such a great film. It's based on a book by Stephen King. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who is legend. Legend. Love this movie. This movie's so freaking good. Love it. Um, The true story behind this um, is that Stephen King and his family were staying in the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, and that's where this movie was based on. So actually the film was shot, the outside shots were of a, I wrote it down somewhere. They were of, uh, maybe I didn't, they were of a hotel in Oregon. Um, and then the inside shots were a studio in London, but it's based on the Stanley hotel in Colorado. Oh, here it is. The Timberline Lodge in Oregon. That's where the exterior shots were. So, like, the scene with the big pile of yeah. snow and Wendy and Danny have to escape through the maze and all that stuff. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Love this movie so much. Um, so, Stephen King and his family actually stayed at the Stanley Hotel for a weekend one winter. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen King and his wife and child stayed for a weekend one winter at the Stanley Hotel And while staying there, um, because it was the wintertime, and this is the Colorado Rockies, there were no other guests in the hotel. Mm. Stephen and his family kind of had run of the hotel. And one night while he was sleeping, he had a horrible nightmare that his son was being tormented by a paranormal entity. And he actually woke up screaming um, because it was so realistic and so scary. And he went out onto the balcony outside of his room and smoked a cigarette and the idea for the shining came to be Mm -hmm. and as he started researching the hotel he realized that there was a lot of cool stuff that he can incorporate into the story Mm -hmm. so a lot of the things that are in the movie and in the book are based on actual paranormal things that happen um so let's see they're, uh, let's see, the ghostly children are seen playing on the fourth floor hallway. Um, we'll get to all of these. 
I want to start. I'm trying to figure. I've, I have notes all over the place. <laughs> the one of the most haunted rooms is room 217. It was 237 in the movie. It's 217 mm-hmm. at the Stanley Hotel. Um, this has stories that date all the way back to 1911 when Miss Elizabeth Wilson, a housekeeper, she was the head housekeeper, she was electrocuted during a lightning storm. Um, She was not killed, but she was catapulted across the hall. Like, she was shocked so hard that it, like, threw her across the hall. Um, And that room kind of became a hotbed for paranormal activity. After her death, though, it said that she has now come back and she haunts that room she Ooh. folds guests clothing oh. and puts their clothes away for them well, um, this is kind of funny if an unmarried couple is occupying the room the very proper Miss Wilson's ghost may climb into bed with them and force them apart oh my gosh <laughs> what no hanky panky till you're married oh my gosh <laughs> yeah um guests staying in this room have felt mysterious sensations in the night many report being woken up with a poke in the ribs if they leave the room in a messy state so miss wilson is still there and she is doing her job she is on it um let's see Okay, so there are other things that go on there. So um, the staircase between the floors in the main guest house is called the Vortex. Because apparently it is a, quote, rapid transit system for ghosts. What? A lot of activity happens on the staircase. So ghost investigators and even hotel staff call it the Vortex. That's crazy. So if you're going to come in contact with a spirit, it's going to be on that staircase. Oh, my gosh. Um, the concert hall is haunted. There is a ghost by the name of Paul who haunts the concert hall. He enforces an 11 p.m. curfew. If you're, there, <laughs> if you're there after 11 p.m., you'll hear him telling you to get out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the founder of the hotel, Flora Stanley... We'll come into the concert hall and play piano for you. How nice. And Lucy, who they think was a runaway or a homeless person, will communicate with investigators quite often. She'll turn on flashlights for them, and she'll get EVPs, give them EVPs and stuff. So she nice. talks a lot to the investigators. Uh, there's a couple other haunted rooms. Room 401 used to be an attic. The whole fourth floor is just active like crazy because it used to be an attic and that's where female employees and their children and their nannies would stay Mm. and now people will hear children running and laughing and there's even a closet door in that in room 401 that will open and close by Mm. itself um room 428 seems to be one of the scariest because there's there's only four floors And above the fourth floor is a slanted roof. Mm -hmm. And people will stay in room 428 and report that right above them, they'll hear footsteps and furniture being slid across the floor. But it's just a roof. Okay. (laughs) It's very odd. Um, There's also in room 428 a friendly cowboy (laughs) who appears on the end of your bed. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Just hang out with you. Um, there's a grand staircase, very grand and fancy staircase. Apparently that's also a very popular passageway for ghosts. There's a picture that I will put in the Facebook group, um, that was taken by a tour guest. They do, I will tell you, they do some of the best ghost tours at the Stanley Hotel. They're, they're so good. People come from all over the place to do these tours. And there was a tour guest who was standing at the top of the grand staircase and took a picture shooting down. And you can very clearly see the ghost of a little girl standing at the top of the stairs. Um, she's got long hair. She looks like she's in a nightgown. Yeah. She's either going up or coming down. It's kind of hard to tell, but very, very clearly a spirit child. Oh, my gosh. Um, And it's been, that picture has been investigated by some of the best researchers, and they said that if it's faked, it's one of the best they've ever seen. 
they don't know how it could be faked um there's also a series of underground caves what under the stanley hotel i didn't know that i didn't either Apparently, it used to be a place where workers could go back and forth because the hotel itself is enormous. And so to keep from carting bags of trash through the hotel or whatever, they would use this underground cave system so the guests wouldn't see. It's kind of like Disney, you know, like there's a whole city underneath Disney that you don't know about because they don't want the guests to see that stuff. Right. Um, People will report feeling breezes, like cold breezes when they go through there. And it's completely closed off on both ends. It's only open to the hotel itself. Um, There's a higher than average concentration of limestone and quartz in the cave system. And investigators said that the ghosts can capture this energy. And that's one of the reasons why the Stanley is so actively haunted. Oh, my gosh. But, um, yeah, the uh, creepy lady in the room... And the spectral twins and all of that were adapted based on actual stories from the Stanley Hotel and are now a part of the legend that is The Shining. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So good. So good. Yeah. I'm looking at the picture. (laughs) Do you see it? Yes. Do you see the little girl? Yes. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. They said that there's a second person, too, potentially. Yeah, it's kind of hard to make that one out, though, because if you look at some of the other people in the picture, they're also blurry because they were, like, mm-hmm. moving when the picture was taken. So I don't know if I see the second person or not or if that's just somebody else. Right. But you definitely see the one girl at the oh. top of the stairs. Oh, my gosh. Like, she's hard to miss. Yeah. Oh. And she doesn't look like she's part of the tour group, right? She looks like she's in a nightgown or something. And, and she's, you know, transparent in some places. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a thing. Yeah. It's awesome. It, that's so crazy. But apparently that's one of the best captures at the Stanley Hotel. She has a shadow. Mm-hmm. Like, she pretty much manifested herself right there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's it. It's crazy. Amazing. Yeah, I love it. Amazing. I mean, I still don't like ghost children, but. <laughs> but these ghost children seem to be pretty harmless. They're chill. I mean, they're just running around, doing their thing, oh, you know, man. living their, well, not living their life. But, I know. mean, kind of. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, you know. It seems pretty harmless, but apparently the tour guides um, do a very, very good job of telling the stories and keeping it entertaining and all of that. But they'll take you around to all the different rooms that are haunted. And as long as nobody's currently staying in them, you can go in them and check them out. And they take you to the vortex and the staircases. What is like, put me in the haunted room? I mean, people request it all the time. They are insane. All the time. People request, like, I want room 428, please. So if you want to, if you are one of those creepy people, you're probably the same people who listen to this podcast at night in the dark by yourself because you're weird, but we love you. You can go request (laughs) room 217, room 401, or room 428. Room 428 is the scariest because you'll have a friendly little cowboy hang out with you. Maybe he'll sing you a song. And all will be well. Or you can, you know, stay in room 217. I want our listeners, I want an unmarried couple to go stay in room 217 and see if Miss Elizabeth lays down between them. And it's like, uh-uh, no. No hanky-panky. That's so funny. I think that's hilarious. I love that. I love that she folds people's clothes and she puts them away. She can come here and fold my clothes and put them away. And then you've got, I mean, they're just, they're very rule-following ghosts. Like, yeah. Paul is like, it's after 11 o'clock. You don't need to be up. Go to bed. I need that Go in to bed. <laughs> it's like the other night. It was literally, guys, this was so funny. It was 9.30. <laughs> and that's when my husband and I go to bed. Because he gets up at 4 a.m. to go to work. And I don't like staying up after he goes to bed. So I go to bed, too. But it's 9.30. And Aaron and I were finishing up a little back-and-forth Facebook message. Mm-hmm. And she sent me a message, and I looked at my phone, and Mark goes, what is she doing up? It's 9.30. Tell her to go to bed. 
like, okay, Dad. <laughs> it's 930. <laughs> it was so funny. But he literally, he was like, what is she doing up? I was like, honey, it is 930. She's a grown-ass woman. That's what she's doing up. And the sad thing was is I was already in bed. <laughs> That was so funny. Yep, I'm going to sleep anyway. So I feel like Mark will be that ghost. Yeah. He'll be like, go to bed. He'll be the rule enforcer. That's right. Go to bed. He'll be like, do you know what time it is? And it'll be like, nine. (laughs) Nine thirty. Well, that was awesome. And I, I want to go do the ghost tour at the Stanley. You I think that would be awesome. That. You it doesn't seem do scary to me. No, so. it doesn't seem I don't want to stay there. No. But I want to go do the ghost tour. Do it. Yeah. It's happening. All right. Well, I'm glad that you saved this one for last because this one's a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. This one's my favorite. <laughs> I also have not seen this movie. <laughs> You're horrible. I know. I know. Um, Okay, so now, so my last story is based on, is not based on, my last movie is The Haunting in Connecticut. All right. Yes. I freaking love this story so much, which is why I didn't want to watch the movie. Okay, brief synopsis here. When their son, Matt, receives a diagnosis of cancer, Sarah and Peter Campbell move to Connecticut to be closer to his doctors. At first, all is well, but then Matt becomes increasingly disturbed by what appears to be paranormal activity. Sarah turns to a priest for help, and the ghosts are seemingly banished, but Matt's condition takes a sudden and unexplained turn for the worse, and the lives of Sarah and the rest of her family are endangered. This is way better than what actually happened. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) I know that there are some things in the movie that are not accurate, and I'm going to just go ahead and tell you those right now. Finding dead bodies in the walls didn't happen. Seeing ghosts with, with, you know, other language words carved into their skin didn't happen. (laughs) A lot of the other stuff did, and there's stuff that happened that they did not turn into a movie. They didn't add to the movie. So... This is actually the story of Alan and Carmen Snedeker. 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 And their daughter, three sons, and two nieces. So, Philip, who was 13, was indeed sick. He was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. They lived in New York at the time, um, but his doctors were in Connecticut. They had him treated at uh, the Yukon Hospital. So this was a ridiculous drive for them. It's a 300-mile round trip uh, five times a week trip. They had to do this. And uh, Carmen was terrified that these trips were going to make his cancer worse, and it was just going to kill him. Um, And he's going through radiation at the time, so he's already, he's just in a state. So they are looking for a temporary residence, and they call all these, like, rental agencies, and all of these rental agencies are like, no, you know, we can't rent to a family with more than two children. And at the time, they have their daughter, three sons, and two of their nieces. They've got custody of two nieces. So uh, they're desperate. They finally find a townhouse that will rent to them even with all these kids, and they took it. They didn't even look at it. They were just like, okay, yeah, we'll take it. Perfect, whatever. We don't care because they just want to move. So when they finally move in, it's their first time seeing the house. The house looks normal, aside from the fact that above every single doorway is a crucifix. They don't think a whole lot of that, except for the fact that, like, maybe the previous, like, tenants were, like, super religious and they just left it behind. Um... The previous homeowner, Daryl Kern, had been in the middle of doing this big renovation project and had left a lot of building materials uh, blocking a door, and the door was a doorway to the basement, right? So they're moving in. They've got all this stuff, like, in front of the door to the basement. They're not worried about that. But um, within three hours, Philip says, there's something evil here. We need to leave now. And she's like, Carmen's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Um, He doesn't think it's fine. The kids feel uneasy about it, but 
they, being children, trust their mother and their father. At some point, Carmen, after they settle, decides it's time to move the building materials and take a look at the basement so they can put some stuff in storage. She moves all this stuff, and when she goes down to the basement, she finds something pretty shocking. Um, she finds uh, gurneys and a hoisting apparatus and scalpels and needles and hooks and a blood drainage pit and uh, lots of freezers because it turns out that this house was a funeral home and she didn't know it. Um, there were also um, all, the mortuary, all the mortuary tools were left and all the embalming tools were left as well. There were separate rooms in the basement for embalming, separate rooms for like prepping, um, but it was all there and it was all relatively untouched, okay? Carmen runs to tell her husband. Um, they find out more about the business. It had been a funeral home for decades. Uh, it started in, it was opened in 1930. So it had been there for a very long time because this is 86 that they moved into this house. Um, these were the first people that had moved into it as a house. Awesome. Now, fun. Yeah. <laughs> Carmen is like, I don't want my child who was being treated for cancer to be constantly reminded of his own mortality we need to move and she tells alan this and alan is like no we don't have a choice and then because he works in new york um he goes back to new york and he leaves carmen there with all the kids because that's what you do mm -hmm. you just leave she decides to block off the embalming room at the very minimum she blocks off the embalming room um but is realizing that Philip's treatments are causing him severe nausea and he's constantly having to go to the bathroom. She wants to make his trip to the bathroom as short as possible. And she realizes that the room that is closest to a bathroom is one in the basement. So she moves both of her sons into the basement. Awesome. Right. Now this is the part that I think is gross, okay? So she's a... <laughs> She's a clever, crafty sort of woman, and she's going to make the most of her little town home and the fact that she's feeding a ton of children. She doesn't have enough refrigerator space, but man, is that freezer big. Ooh. She uses the freezer in the basement for overflow no. food. Uses no, it. no, 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 no. I know. I feel like this is back to the Rampart Street house. I know. She uses it. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. God, that's awful. So uh, the very first night that there, that Philip is in the basement, he is woken up by someone saying his name over and over and over again. Um, he tells his mother. She says, no, you were dreaming or you heard me on the phone with your father. And he's like, that's not possible. I was in the basement. Like, how is that? You know. Um, she comes down later to check on him and notices that the crucifix that was um, over the doorway to the morgue part of this basement, um, that it was gone. She's looking everywhere for it. She asks the kids if they've got it. No, they don't have it. They don't know where it went. Um, <laughs> the oldest, the, the children all began seeing ghosts. They began seeing apparitions all over the house. Um, and at first it's just like, uh, a figure here, a figure there. Um, and they are telling each other these stories and the mother's like, stop talking about it. You know, you guys are just being crazy. There's nothing wrong. Cause they've eventually gotten wind that this is. A funeral home. They figured it out. They're not idiots. Um, the kids are all in the basement. And they're exploring under the counters and looking at all the things because they're little boys and this is all spooky stuff, right? Um, except that the floor started bleeding. Oh. Yeah, blood started coming out of the floor and the walls. They get their mother. Carmen sees it. And she goes, oh, um, it's paint. It's not paint. Um, so she yells at them to stay out of parts of the basement that they have no business being in. Tells them to stop telling each other scary stories. Tells them to, you know, just essentially grow up. She doesn't want to hear any more of it. She doesn't want to hear it. Um, <laughs> one night, 
Philip and Brad, the two boys, uh, start freaking out because they see four figures standing in the corner of the room. And the four figures are surrounding a toy robot and the toy is going crazy. It's like jumping around and making noises and being flipped over. Carmen runs down the stairs. Um, there's, the kids are scared to death. She sees the toy. She doesn't see the individuals, the figures. Um, she searches and she punishes the children. She's like, you're grounded. Like, don't do this. Why are you scaring each other? Um, she bans all speak of ghosts in this house. Good move, Mom. Yeah. A little while later, Brad comes home to find Philip moving his bed out of their bedroom, their shared bedroom in the basement, and into the embalming room. When Brad asked Philip why he was doing it, Philip said he made a deal to move in there. Um, she, he didn't really say what the deal was, but he made a deal with someone that he was moving in there. Carmen uh, was Catholic, and when she got wind of this, she was like, uh-uh, you don't make deals with dead people that don't exist. Um, after this point, Philip starts to become withdrawn. Now, at first, she believes that this is side effects of him being treated for cancer. Um, he doesn't smile anymore. He doesn't talk to anyone anymore. And uh, he begins keeping a journal. The other kids tease him about having a diary. Um, and then somebody steals it. Um, Tammy, one of the nieces, steals it. It's one of his Way cousins. to go, Tammy. Tammy. And... She didn't really want to invade Philip's privacy, but she gave the journal to Carmen. She's like, look what I found. Um, Carmen reads it. The journal is full of pages about death, murder, and killing people. And they're very eloquently written. Okay? And the reason that this, this really hits Carmen hard, because Philip is dyslexic. He can, oh. he can barely read. He can barely write. And she's been working with him for years to fix this and he struggles regularly with it um so she questions him she goes to him and she's and she's like you're not in trouble but how did you do this and he said oh the man helped me Mm -mm. so at this point philip's personality begins changing even further he starts to get very aggressive bear in mind that he is being treated for cancer he should be really weak um any argument that he has with his brothers turns into a fist fight that he wins. Um, at one point, Tammy tries to break up the fight. She he, he picked her up and threw her across the room as though she were nothing. Um, Carmen calls the son's doctor and says that, you know, this is something that we're doing with the treatment is making him crazy. And the doctor says, nope. He sounds like a schizophrenic. And she starts doing the paperwork to get Philip committed. Uh, before he was committed, though, Tammy is trying to sleep and she feels something pull the covers off of her bed and something pulling at her bra strap. This is the point where she starts confronting Philip and is like, what are you doing to your cousins? It wasn't Philip. Um, Philip was then carted away. People, doctors showed up at her house and they took him away. Um... Philip was very upset because, you know, he wanted to continue playing with the man that came to play with him and talk to him. Um, Carmen, after he is taken away, she's angry. She goes into Philip's room and she starts daring the man to come play with her because it's ruined her life. Nothing happens. She sits there for hours and nothing happens. She finally gets in the shower because she's upset and she, you know, wants to wash away all of this and just cry and the shower curtain wraps around her and pulls tight around her face and starts smothering her. And she's struggling and fighting to get out. Tammy comes in because she hears it. Tammy has to rip a hole in the curtain so that uh, Carmen can breathe. Good God. Mm-hmm. 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 Later that night, Tammy and Carmen had gotten into bed. Tammy started screaming because something ripped the covers off of her and Carmen comes running in the room and sees a skeletal hand rising mm -mm. under Tammy's clothes groping as it moves up 
Um, no. Carmen grabs Tammy. They run to the dining room. It chases Tammy and grabs the rosary around her neck and rips it to the floor. They still don't move out. <laughs> because they're still treating someone at this point. She goes to mop the floor. Her mop bucket turns into her. The water in her mop bucket turns into blood. It's deep, deep red. Um, dishes disappear and stuff. Um, and then they start seeing full body apparitions of a man with long black hair and high cheekbones. And he wanders around the house and he's like very long and skeletal looking apparently. And he like just will wander from corner to corner and apparently too fast, which is really awesome. And he'll stare at you. Um, apparently this is the man that would play with Philip. Um, and then there was also a man who wore a pinstripe tuxedo and kept his arms crossed over his chest and had a, like a very gaunt face as though he was being prepared for burial, but he would be spotted just standing in certain spots around the house. Um, after the, after the haunting in Connecticut came out, cause they did eventually move and then they didn't deal with it anymore. Once they left the house, they were fine. Philip was fine. Once they got him out of the house, by the way, he was discharged from the mental hospital. He was not schizophrenic. He was fine. Um, they were able to go to the brother because sadly Philip did, uh, pass away from his cancer not long ago, actually. Um, but they, they did get to one of the brothers and they asked about like, is this stuff true? Like you're an adult now, your mom's not coercing you. Is this true? Um, and according to Bradley, the, the other brother, he said that most of the stuff was true. He said that the, you know, the dead bodies in the walls, that wasn't true. And, you know, like the, uh, the ghost with the carvings in their skin, that wasn't true. Um, he said that his brother turned into a dark and violent uh, person who was not the person he was before he moved into the house. He said one time he went into uh, his brother's room and his brother was sitting on a gurney that was spinning. And the gurney mm. was spinning on its own. Um, he said that there were violent sexual assaults by unseen entities all through the house while the, vic uh, while the occupants were sleeping and they would wake up in a state of fear, frozen in place and unable to move before they were horrifically violated. Um, the niece confirmed that she did indeed have to rip the shower curtain off of her, uh, aunt, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren did come out and they did an investigation, determined the house was possessed, tried to exercise it. And then they did some research and found out that the people that were in the house were probably, um, some of them were people that had been, that had died, like had been dead in that house. Other people were people that worked there. Um, that were evil because many of the funeral workers in that funeral home were found guilty of necrophilia. Ew. Mm-hmm. Um, so the house was exercised. The family moved. The haunting ended there. There has been no, like, report of activity since then, um, which is good. But that is... Why do people still live there, though? I don't know. <laughs> no idea. The current person said that it's just, like, a chill, quaint, like whatever townhouse i think it should be burned to the ground <laughs> that's just me um yeah oh and my favorite part of this whole thing is that they would wake up sometimes and i didn't even write this down because it was like it stuck to me so hard they would wake up sometimes with toe tags on their feet oh my god mm -hmm. it's awful isn't that terrible yeah so that's the story that is a true story behind the that's terrifying and it's way scarier than the movie yeah awful that's awful yep all right well i'm thoroughly freaked out now i know i'm like looking around i'm like um, um yeah so you have a list of movies now to watch tonight on this epic halloween evening yes do it some good ones good ones 
don't open the door for children. You don't know that they're actually real. <laughs> right. Eat the candy there was some yourself. stupid movie on the other night, and I didn't watch it. I only saw a little snippet of it, and then I changed it. But I think it was called Trick or Treat. <laughs> Trick or Treat. And it was like this thing that looked like a little kid in Halloween costume, but apparently he was a murdery demon. Oh. So he's walking around with the kids. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's spooky. Like, okay. Did you yeah. listen to the episode of My Favorite Murder about trick-or-treating? No. Oh, it's a good one. I'm surpri- I was surprised that she did it. She, um, Georgia did, like, a myth-busting of the, like, people poisoning candy. Oh, really? Yeah. And then she told the story that actually did happen. The one story that happened. And it was, like, this, you know, dad who poisoned his kid's candy. Because he's a jackass like that. Yeah. I remember growing up when we would go trick-or-treating, my mom was always like, you have to check, you have to let me check the candy before you eat it. Yeah. And we'd have to dump it out on the floor or on the table or whatever, and she would go through it. And if there was anything that even remotely looked like the packaging had been tampered with, yeah, I'd have to throw it out. And that's it's when always you a sad time. You hide the Reese's pieces and peanut butter cups. <laughs> yeah. and you're like, no, these are fine. <laughs> it was a sad time. Oh my gosh! No, this now I just buy my own and I keep it to myself, Amen. and I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> Amen. That's, I'm over here like I wonder if I could go and get a bag of peanut butter cups now because that's my favorite part. And for some reason, Tootsie Rolls. I don't know why. I love Tootsie Rolls. I, I, I go through some, some Tootsie Rolls. I still have Reese's Cups in my little cookie jar back there. Nice. Well, that's it. Yeah. Well, that was terrifying and fantastic. It was a fun adventure. It really was. <laughs> so tell us what your favorite ha- Halloween movie is. I want to know. Indeed. And uh, I'd like to know if it's like one of these movies that's based on a True actual story actual events i hate when they say that though and then you look it up and it's literally like there was one person said this one time that yeah they heard a knock on the wall yeah and, then you're and like, they're like oh my god it's haunted yeah yeah spooky knocking on wall but yeah these are legit based on actual yep. things so yes yeah good stuff so all right guys well happy halloween Stay safe if you're taking your kiddos trick-or-treating or if you're going to any costume parties or whatever. Stay safe. Have a good time. And don't bring any we'll ghosts be back. home. Yeah, don't bring any ghosts home. We'll be back with a regular episode on Saturday. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Girls and Ghouls. Don't forget to subscribe to Girls and Ghouls on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star review or tell us how scared you were on social media. You can tag us with hashtag girlsandghouls or tag us at girlsandghouls. Until next time, stay scared, friends.